my dad the next morning told me that he couldn't sleep at all. Something about him just, it got, it, it, something really triggered him because not too long after that, I started seeing his behavior changing very gradually. As I was gonna get to high school, he was very, very protective of me. So my dad had a lot of paranoia as I got older. You're listening to the podcast, Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Real quick, before we start the show, our podcast will be turning two years old this October 10th. To celebrate, we're asking for your help to get us to 3,000 Instagram followers so that we can continue to spread the word about our podcast and our nonprofit mission. Visit our Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People for more details. As we close out season three, Our stories from this season shed light on what it was like to be torn between two worlds and two cultures on Generation 1.5, a term used for people who immigrated here as children. But when we talk about Generation 1.5, do we assume that the same struggles do not exist for the American-born Vietnamese, those whom are categorized as the second generation? Or do those same struggles get passed down to the second generation and they too have to continue to carry those same burdens? And how do they manage that to understand their family's histories and trauma while also grappling with their own identities in the blanket term Asian Americans? In this episode, we explore these questions from three second generation Vietnamese Americans. Growing up in, in Arkansas, a, you know, a difficult childhood and growing up in Arkansas, I can say that now I'm very appreciative of it because it made me the person that I am today. Uh, I'm very humbled by it, but I'm very happy because I was born and raised there now. Like I, and I think because I'm grounded the way that I am was because of living in that little small shed in Arkansas. Anne Fan is an actor, model, and media studies PhD candidate. Anne's parents first settled in Salt Lake City, Utah, when they arrived to America as refugees, and then moved near Fort Smith, Arkansas, where Anne was born and raised. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Father spent most of his time, he was a mechanic, he's very good at what he does, and he had a lot of training from in, in Vietnam because he obviously fixed things. He was also an electrical engineer. So most of the, he, he considered himself as a mechanic. And my mother, she would always get like random jobs to like, you know, help the family out. But because, you know, kind of, he was kind of like the dominant one. So he was just like taking over and make and made those decisions for her. So she couldn't do much but bite her tongue and be like, you know, he's like, oh, you can't do much. You know, you're, you're weak. You're very small. You can't do it. Like, let me do. I'm the man. And so there was that. And it was very difficult for her, too. She's very, um. She, she, likes, she likes to be independent. V. Sung Jin is currently a nurse and freelance photographer in Portland, Oregon. He was born in Indonesia at a refugee camp and raised in Chicago and Los Angeles. 
So when I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, it was a very predominantly white school, right? I was probably the 5% of Asian folks or in a high school. And within that 5%, I was probably only the, the two Vietnamese kids in a sea of other white folks. And for me, it was all about assimilation. I remember just like having friends over in our, in our house and I was just making sure that our house doesn't smell a certain way, that it doesn't smell like nuk mam. Oh, mam ruk. Mam ruk or anything of that sort, right? Like making sure that, you know, when my friends come in, they don't see my mom like karaoke at night or like watching Galung or Paris by night, you know, just to don't want to have to explain to them. I know. How many episodes of Paris by night have we watched <laughs> growing up? <laughs> oh, too many. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think that was part of like the initial moment where I just felt not ashamed, but I, I wanted to kind of sweep that underneath the rug, at least for the time being, right? And I think being a very sensitive and emotional adolescent, I just wanted to fit in as much as possible. But that all changed when I move out to the Bay Area and be a little bit more aware and um, comfortable in my own skin and being in a community of color who are also trying to explore what it means to be, you know, their own, uh, reclaiming their own heritage. Randy Kim is the host and founder of the Bunway Chronicles podcast. He was born and raised in the Chicago area and identifies as a queer Khmer Vietnamese American. Yeah, so I grew up mostly in the in the uh, Chicagoland suburbs. I uh, most of the time I grew up in a town called Westmount, which is about a good 30 minutes west of Chicago. And it was actually a very white uh, working class neighborhood. It was quite conservative too at that time. And uh, in Chicago uh, itself, there's a large Vietnamese population, and there's a decent Cambodian community there. So there's a neighbor called. Um, which is now Asian Argyle. It's on Argyle Street. There's a big Vietnamese uh, community. There. There's all these mom and pop stores. There's all these spa restaurants, and so that was where we would go every weekend to get food. And that was where uh, my parents would feel more connected, being in those communities. But in the place that we lived in, it was mostly uh, very white, and there weren't any really any Asian people. So growing up, I felt like I was forced to assimilate into the Western culture in order to succeed, to have a better future, and not having anyone to confide in or to uh, practice my cultural roots was challenging. And it was hard to operate. And so I felt like my only connection was really food. For most second-generation Vietnamese children, their childhood looked nothing like that of their parents. They did not grow up during the Vietnam War era, nor do they have memories of the life-threatening escapes from the country. Even so, this generation still internalizes the experiences, some through stories told by their parents, while others can feel the effects of the trauma even if those stories were never told. was born and raised in uh, little uh, in Saigon and my father was born in Yakjang. So they met each other through um, arranged 
the arrangement. So my grandfather, he wanted my mother to kind of follow his style and he wanted just someone who's kind and good heart and can hopefully take my mother to America and, and start a new life there. Be, um, because of the communism and all of that, they end up um, having to go through a lot of hardship. My mother actually had to fly out and my father, however, you know, had to escape through boat. But my father was captured for two years um, in prison because of um, communism. And my father had a witness. My uh, uncle died in front of him. So it was very dramatic. And my mother um, had to wait for my father in America with her side of the family. And so they married each other in Vietnam and they kind of finalized it out in America. Do you know, like, have you heard any of the stories of what happened to him in prison? So he told me that he was starved and they gave him like he was like extremely malnourished he told me that they fed him like a very small bowl of rice and they will put salt on it and it's almost that he has to compete with the other inmates to get food because um, they didn't give him enough and and then that was pretty much it was just mostly survival mode and for him, the most dramatic thing, I believe, was that when um, my uncle uh, drowned in front of him and when they got captured on the boat, um, he watched his own brother die in, in front of him and couldn't do anything about it. My mom said that it was around 1979 when they officially made it out to the United States. Uh, my father, I'm not sure about the timeline. I'm always kind of a little afraid to ask him personally because of the trauma. He just kind of, he's, he's definitely a different person, what my mother said. So th there was a lot of times that like, I don't even ask him directly what year. I just knew that it was, it took him around two years to make it. My dad recall that it was a very stormy night. And I'm not exactly sure if he was hallucinating or he was just having a lack of food or water or, or something that was going on. But he recall that his boat could have sunk if there was not this whale that was sort of following the boat. That this whale was sort of like this guardian spirit that kind of helped gear them towards the right path into safety. And whether that's true or not, I think it's just a, a very beautiful imagery of a lot of the elements of the unknown elements of you've got you know the atrociousness of, of the ocean water the unpredictability but yet you have this watchful being kind of guiding these uh, 30 Vietnamese faces into the right direction. Phi Sun's mom was pregnant with him at the time of the escape. She gave birth to him on April 22nd in 1986 at a refugee camp in Galang, Indonesia. So my parents, uh, they had to leave my sister behind. She was one at the time to our grandparents over in Jaom, a small village out there by the Mekong River. And it was a very hard decision to make, but they felt at the time that it was the right decision to make because she was way too young. There are many times where I was just kind of in denial, like, oh, did I really have a sister? Well, like, what's her name? What is she like? What is, what is her voice like? Does she even look like me? Yeah, it's, it's a very bizarre feeling, but uh, when we did, when I did met my sister for the very first time, it was, it almost felt as if I knew her um, through the pictures that I've seen, 
through some footage that my dad recorded of my sister when he went back to Vietnam to visit her before she actually immigrated to the States. I'm trying to have my space for my parents. And it's, it's interesting because even though I'm trying to have this space away from my parents, I find myself doing a lot of things that I've kind of yearned to have myself near them. And a thing that I've, I've done very recently here in Portland is I would go to a lot of Vietnamese restaurants during the weekend just to be in a space that allows me to just hear all the intonations of Vietnamese as a way to kind of remind myself of what it was like to be in the presence of a household of my parents speaking in Vietnamese. And it's a very comforting, but also very visceral feeling that I get from it. And it makes me miss my parents even more. My dad the next morning told me that he couldn't sleep at all. Something about him just, it got, it, it, something really triggered him because not too long after that, I started seeing his behavior changing very gradually. And as I was getting into high school, he was very, very protective of me. He started becoming very interrogating. Like if I came home, like let's say 10 o'clock, um, he would start getting very, very upset with me. And my dad started telling, asking me questions of, did someone tell you to do this? Did someone tell you to do that? So my dad had a lot of paranoia as I got older. And then when I would get into arguments with him, my dad, my dad's, um, own PTSD would come out and he would say, I lost 20 members of my family. I almost got killed in Khmer Rouge. So it would come out of anger. Randy's father was a survivor of the Khmer Rouge genocide and his mother was a survivor of the Vietnam War. You know, this is a person who never had a childhood. He actually grew up in Vietnam. He had the Vietnam War. His mom died at a young age. His family was separated and then he had to live in Cambodia and to experience all this trauma and not being able to make peace with it and not being able to move forward or be encouraged to move forward was very challenging. And I felt that, you know, my dad was having the burden to carry all this, all this weight, especially with him raising my fa our family and trying to make a decent living and trying to make sure that we were educated and being able to have a better life than he had. But it was hard. It was a very challenging experience for my dad. And um, it got to the point where I did have to intervene and get him help. I felt I have a responsibility to understand the impact of that period of time and how that actually impacted me growing up. And how do we work to uh, process that painful history so that we can break that cycle of trauma and anger and um, sadness uh, for the following generation and, and, and also for myself. So it's, it's, it's certainly something that uh, I try to be more aware of and understand my dad's uh, history, but also understand the roots of those, of the pain that he went through. And, you know, seeing like, now, like, I, I remember growing up, I spent a lot of my time, sorry, I'm getting emotional just even thinking about it. Um, I spent most of my um, childhood protecting my father and making sure that, you know, I don't cross boundaries. Um, 
because he's, you know, going through so much and, you know, everything scares him. And I feel like he never was really free from from the war, you know? So growing up, seeing how much pain that he has to go through, my mom's like, that's his PTSD. You have to be understanding, you have to, you know, not touch those kind of subjects. You have to be kind to your dad. And I didn't understand that. But now looking back, I'm like, I wish I had, you know, approach him in a different way and understand that everything that he's going through, he he's not the same as, you know, but that's the only version I've, you know, known of my father, but I felt like he could have, you know, gotten out of that box, you know. I wanted to take my own life in fifth grade and I realized I was like, I told, I remember coming out to my sister in high school telling her that I can't do this anymore. It's just too much. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm growing up into, I can't. Anne's experiences as a child watching her father deal with PTSD post-traumatic stress syndrome affected her in a way that at the time she did not have the words to describe. I don't know if it's because of, you know, high school is the most difficult time of her life, but why am I always so, so deeply sad? My mom even was concerned about me. She's like, feel like we didn't do enough to make you happy, but I was like, you guys did more than enough. Um, unfortunately, that's reality. It is what it is, right? But how am I going to fix it? I'm doing everything I can. I told my sister, I was like, I don't think I can make, I'm going to make it. The little Anne was not the Anne that she was. Like, she wasn't as innocent. I had to see a lot of stuff that I I wish, you know, I maybe maybe in another, another time in the future, I would be able to express it. But right now, I'm good thing. They might not, yeah, I can't really push it out. But I'm very grateful for everything. And I have become so much stronger i think someone else is out here is exactly going through exactly what i'm going through how can my um, how can i protect my father but not only protect him but make him understand that he is more than that he's such a happier man today this is the happiest version of my father i have ever seen my entire life like i i'm very 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 lucky to be able to witness that I was diagnosed with depression very early age of fifth grade. At least I feel like at, during my time, people weren't really speaking up about mental health. And especially in the Asian community, mental health, um, be, um, any kind of young day, it's known as you do it, is what my mom said. And my a father, weakness. Did, yes, a weakness that is, it's just in the head. It's just in the mind. And so my father, as a um, he wants to represent my man and it's just enough to, to to show my family that I am a man. I can do this. I'm fine. I'm okay. What happened to me already happened. Why am I so affected by it? To help process their traumas, all three turn to the arts for healing. It's, it's been a very interesting trajectory of how I chose nursing as my primary profession. But so I'm actually a non-traditional student. I, I graduated at UC Davis with a major in English and I was actually um, working at a radio station. And so I've been very fascinated with storytelling. But around this time, I, I was with a partner who relapsed to leukemia and that really shifted my whole career trajectory. I had to leave the radio station at the time to um, just be by her bedside. And unfortunately, you know, she passed away and that really 
put me in a position where I couldn't see myself going back into radio because I've just experienced grief and loss and all this thing that came along with it. And I knew that I'm still interested in storytelling, but I also wanted to contribute to healthcare in some form or some way. And so that's when I decided to join a nonprofit that focuses on finding stem cells for patients living with cancer, specifically patients of Asian American descent. They were looking for a videographer at the time to meet with patients by their bedside and film them share those stories. I can't imagine like how that must feel to be documenting other people's journey, having kind of experienced your own recently with, you know, a loved one. It is emotionally heavy and it, it, it takes a lot of mindfulness and processing and allowing myself to, to be in the presence of those emotions. People would say, well, you need to compartmentalize. And that might be potentially true, but sometimes compartmentalize those emotions might resurface itself in the most unexpected way. And so I felt like it is a position where I need to be very mindful and, and very empathetic of feeling those emotions as a way of sort of healing. What made me chose nursing specifically was at the time when my, my partner was alive, it was the nurses that was by her bedside. 12 hours, three days a week. And to me, I wanted to be in that position of being in the presence of someone's resilience and strength. 29 years ago, at the tender age of four, I recall looking through an SLR film camera for the first time and thought it was one of the most amazing things ever created. How a tiny black boxy-looking item can turn memories into something visual, something tangible. That was a clip from a project that V. Sung began called The Stories We Carry, a chronicle that dives deep into ancestral roots and family migration stories. One particular photo that caught my attention was a photo of my dad at the refugee camp, standing among all these paintings that he draw. And it's, it was very unique to me when I saw that photo, especially at a very young age, is because, you know, oftentimes I hear stories of my parents sharing about their struggles into the refugee camp. But when I saw that particular photo and I asked my dad, well, where was this photo taken? He's like, well, this photo was taken at refugee camp. I spent my time drawing these paintings. And I was like, this is amazing because, like, you've never thought that there would be something, there would be lightness in a place that is for refuge, right? So to me, that was very, uh, a breath of fresh air. That image itself got me into the idea of utilizing creative work as a way of form of storytelling. Anne performed a monologue about her parents' experiences of coming to America and her experience as an Asian American. I come to America for education and opportunity. You may say my skin is yellow. I say it is gold. I wrote that for my thesis for my MFA. It's called Gold. It's based off the song, You Say My Skin Is Yellow. I said that it is gold. And I wrote about an international student coming from Vietnam to America and the other Vietnamese American girl did not accept her in class and allow her to be bullied because she wanted identified as that. And I thought about my time in, in, in school and I thought about my mother. So when I wrote that piece, it was premiered at Warner Bros. It was 
a thesis project that turned out to be so meaningful. And, and, and that's why I use that piece for all that it is worth. It's about, you know, just a piece where I start talking about it in class where a lot of people were judging me. I could feel that even though I was speaking in broken English for my monologue. And um, that made a lot of the judges get down. And the judges, like, I just, one of the judges, she told me, she's like, I just, I just don't understand, like, how a kid like you could, born and raised in America, never stepped foot in the land of Vietnam, could write this piece. And I said, my mom and my father, and that not that what acting is for, is that I can try my best to feel as close as possible. Because I thought that my parents never really got along. And I'm like, Vietnamese and Cambodian people have a long history of dislike, conflict, absolutely. And I mean, part of it has to do with the French colonization. Uh, but it really, it, it, it was very odd, uh, especially being in that community, knowing that you're half um, on both ends. And it felt kind of uh, very, it felt challenging know that you're walking in and you're seen as not enough and you're seen as well you're not really Khmer, you're not really Vietnamese and knowing that I also didn't really speak the languages at all also pushed that uh, narrative of not being enough quite hard. I tried to deny my believing that I was gay because I felt what I was taught that you know gay people uh, were, you know, flamboyant and excessive and uh, over the top. And I did not see myself with those personalities. I saw myself as quiet, um, studious, and I didn't think I fit that stereotype. But my mom had suspicions that I might be. So it really took me until my beginning of my 30s, actually, believe it or not, uh, to be more comfortable with the idea of being a queer individual. Uh, for my mom, she slowly accepted the idea. She acknowledges it, but we don't talk about it in great detail. Um, I think it's something that she acknowledges. She doesn't really push. The last several years have been more, uh, I've been more uh, willing to push myself to take charge my own narratives mm -hmm. and to not have to be defined by other people's expectations, uh, including my parents. So I feel like I'm in a very good place where I can own the queer Southeast Asian American narrative and not be boxed in by what that is supposed to look like. What does being Vietnamese supposed to look like? What does being Khmer supposed to look like? What does being gay supposed to look like? What does being an American supposed to look like? Randy is currently a board member at the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in Chicago. And I am the only male uh, member of the board, which is female-led, which I think is long overdue because for a long time, when the museum was under the Cambodian Association of Illinois, it had been dominated by older Khmer men for decades. And it was very patriarchal and it just did not feel inclusive and and it did not bring in the kind of of 1.5 second generation input that is badly needed especially as the surviving Khmer Rouge survivors adult Khmer Rouge survivors are transitioning into retirement and 
death. And so this is an opportunity to think about the legacy of Cambodian Americans in America right now and the and the young folks who are carrying this legacy and adding their own history to it. What would you say is kind of the biggest challenge within our Vietnamese American community today? Challenge is to be, I guess, as open as possible. So you have to be kind to yourself and, and understand that this is okay. You, you, whatever you're feeling, you are, you have the right to feel that way. And I told my mom, I was like, mom, like, are you taking care of yourself? You spent so much time trying to, to make ends meet. Are you taking care of yourself? Are you okay? My parents are good now. My dad's retired. He's, you know, more relaxed. But, you know, sometimes I ask my dad, so I see the trauma coming back. And I said, are you okay today, dad? Do you want to take a few, you know, just to take a break a little bit? I was like, I love you. And I just want you to know that whatever you're feeling, it's okay. You've been through a lot. This is just another small little speck and you'll be okay. You're going to battle it out. So I think our community overall should focus so much on, on mental health. The older generation, the younger generation, it is something especially with the world. It's completely changed, like, like within seconds. We need to take care of each other. We're all over the place, right? We're in different places and we're in Australia, we're in Europe, we're here in the States. So for me, it's it's reassuring to, to hear that even though we have these differences in our, our migration stories, there are so many different similarities. And I think um, what I hope that listeners would do is continue to find your own story and be very curious about um, how you came part into this country. As you're, as you're able to kind of gather more information about your own family's history and trajectory, then really start asking yourself, well, what does that mean for me? How do I, once I once my parents passed a baton, what, what do I do with this baton? And how do I start to kind of branch out from the roots that my parents set in? Taking that idea of survivorship and coming here to Portland, I've been finding myself trying to be more like my parents, right? Trying to assimilate but assimilate in a way that is true to myself, not trying to fit the social norms, but assimilate in a way to be comfortable in my own Vietnamese identity and to be proud of what that means and be able to express myself what it means to be Vietnamese through art, through the way that I communicate with people, through the way I, I am as a, as a nurse. I think that in itself is one of the most proudest moments of being Vietnamese is taking all these different life experiences and just kind of put it together in ways that is very true to myself and reflective of my own parents' experiences. How do we tie in anti-Asian, COVID-19, anti-Blackness in the upcoming election? Because this is going to be an opportunity, or this should be an opportunity to confront these issues that we're dealing with in 2020 right now. And the Asian American community is not immune to this. This is an opportunity for us to go past our silence, but to have the hard conversations that we're not having. I have been spending the month of July just having these interviews, and I'm glad that I'm talking with the people that I'm talking to because they have the experience or are working towards the much needed conversations that we must be having so that we can document our history right now. Because when we look at it 20, 30 years from now and we have 
future young Asian Americans seeing this part of history, the question that they may be asking is, what did we do? What was our response? So today, yesterday, and tomorrow, these are conversations that we need to have. And not just conversations, but how is it reflected in our actions? How is it reflected in our vote? How is it reflected on what we are creating? Randy's podcast, Bunway Chronicles, is now in its third season. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunway Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. And it's great to be back again. This time to share with you this new third season with the theme, Where Do We Stand? There is no doubt that the second generation is carving out their own identities in American history, one that is very different from their parents' generation, yet influenced by their history and heritage. They are in a unique position to act as the bridge between older immigrant generations and younger American-born generations, and to help open the dialogue on the past trauma so that we can make space to heal and find closure. The impact and actions taken by this generation will create a new legacy for Vietnamese Americans in generations to come. For details on this episode, or to connect with V-Sun, Anne, or Randy, and follow their creative work, visit our Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 23. This episode concludes our season three. We will be launching season four in 2021 with a new theme, The Search. Stay tuned for more details. And please, don't forget to vote in this upcoming election. And when you do, remember that America is a country built from immigrant history and that we are our best when we unite and have compassion for one another. And a quick shout out to our team members, Matt Young, Jackie Reed, and Trisha Vung for the production of this episode. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, be kind, and stay resilient. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.